What's up, guys? How's everybody doing? Will and I are back on our discussion about nootropics. If you listened to our last episode, we talked about what is a nootropic. This one, we're going to dive more into what is a smart drug, what is a nootropic, and how do they compare and contrast. Um, And we're also going to talk about things like considering the system as a whole, which I'll let Will explain a little bit more, and then stacking. Um, how you should stack nootropics, what the literature says about that. Yeah, it's funny what the literature says about that. It doesn't say a whole lot. <laughs> so, all right, guys, like Andy said, if you listen to the last episode, you'll catch, uh, you know, basically what we classified as a nootropic. And that's based off of the founding father of nootropics and, and his definition, his classifications for him with some minor, some minor um, fixes by us. Um, but yeah, so we, we had left off, <laughs> we had left off when we were getting into the discussion of really what, what's, uh, now how do we define a smart drug versus a nootropic? Because people use the terms interchangeably and they're certainly not interchangeable. So Andy, like what, like, you know, it just off the top of your head, how would you differentiate a smart drug versus a nootropic? I mean, based on your your previous definitions of what a nootropic is, um, it has to be protective of the brain. It has to improve cognitive awareness. It it has to improve learning, improve memory, improve recall. But a smart drug just, from my experience with smart drugs, is kind of stim you out. (laughs) They don't really do a lot of, of what a nootropic would do, but they just kind of stim you out and make you basically give you the illusion that that all of these things are happening but they right. may not it's interesting because you're not exactly wrong in what you're saying um you know something like modafinil for instance is what we would consider a smart drug modafinil at recommended dosages does show a lot of neuroprotection in some cases for people so you know that does kind of fit one of the criteria for uh, a nootropic and and what it could be in terms of, you know, improving things like uh, information processing, consolidation, and recall, I mean, smart drugs basically do all that. You know, I think one of the biggest problems that we see with those is, is the, the growing dependence on them. But <clears throat> mainly, the, the main differentiator, in my opinion, between a smart drug and a nootropic are uh, synthetic prescription compounds versus natural compounds and or synthetic compounds that have been labeled as supplements and aren't controlled by the FDA. So for instance, Ritalin, Adderall, Modafinil, Vyvanse, all synthetic prescription grade pharmaceuticals. Um, And the potency of those can be tenfold and greater of, of some of the best you know, we call quote unquote natural nootropics. So that's kind of how I differentiate them is if it has to be prescribed by a doctor. And I know that this, this is different, um, (laughs) some between country to country, but if it's a synthetic compound that has to be prescribed by a doctor and that's the case for most countries, then it's a smart drug, you know, but you might have some things like I can't think of one off the top of my head. If if, uh, in the UK, I do know that some compounds 
uh, aren't legal to sell supplements. However, in the U.S., they are. I don't know if NuPEP falls under those. It, it might. NuPEP actually might fall under um, not being able to be sold as a supplement in the U.K. Don't quote me on that, but something of similar intensity does. They do do that. Um, but I still, so if it's legal over here and not legal over in the UK, for instance, I wouldn't consider it a smart drug, um, at least a legal without uh, a script or a prescription. So again, synthetic prescription grade pharmaceuticals. And again, we're talking Ritalin, Modafinil, Adderall, Vyvanse, and things of that nature. Selegiline, um, to me, those are smart drugs. Then then a lot of the things that we discuss are more nootropics. Exactly. Like we don't do a whole lot of talking about modafinil really. Like, you know, it's like I have experience with those things, reasonably knowledgeable about them. And when people ask me about them, I talk about them, but they're not things that, that we tend to promote as a, you know, if you know where to look, they're not hard to get your hands on if you don't need a prescription for it. And, but they're just too easy to abuse. Uh, They're too easy to become dependent on. So I don't really promote, I don't really promote those things for general population. There might be some specific in instances where that's not the case, but generally, uh, those aren't things that I, I, I tend to kind of try to steer people away from those things and use more. We'll call them natural or herbal alternatives. I feel weird saying that. I sound like a hippie. No offense. To, no offense to hippies out there. Love hippies. Um, you know, like a like a nat- naturopath. But that that is kind of the direction I take when it comes to influencing, um, you know, cognitive ability or however you, however you want to want to say that, you know, neural activity when we get into catecholamine content of the brain and its inner workings, then I, I tend to go the more naturopath direction. So what, how do, how do you normally categorize nootropics? So if you're looking at, okay, I take this nootropic because of this purpose or this nootropic because of this purpose is do you, do you tend to combine certain ones? I know we're talking, going to talk about stacking, but what would be, for example, if you're, if you want to, if you're reading a lot and you want to remember what you're reading, what would be something that you would normally take? Right. So this is, this kind of comes into what we were going to be talking about next. And that's, and again, guys, this is for people who are, are kind of more nootropics or not super knowledgeable about them. And these are the kinds of things that you need to consider when differentiating between nootropics, when choosing which ones are going to be right for you. Because what works for me isn't going to work for you. What works for Andy isn't going to work for me, which you know definitely might not work for you. Like We just don't know. Everybody's um, kind of baseline neural activity is so different. And brain chemistry is so different from person to person that what's going to work for me and promote my cognitive enhancement uh, is not necessarily going to do the same for you and could even be deleterious in effects. So, you know, when we're classifying nootropics, we're looking at things like, A, you could say like nootropics that increase motivation. You could classify nootropics that increase or, or say decrease social anxiety. So maybe increase sociability, um, nootropics that might help combat depression, nootropics that specifically enhance memory, nootropics that might specifically enhance recall. So 
these are kind of the classifications. Let's say, you know, memory, you know, anti-anxiety, depression, and uh, motivation. Those, those are kind of like big umbrella terms that, that you can kind of toss different compounds underneath for, for how they work for most people. But it's interesting because, like I said, when you're trying to choose between nootropics, I kind of tend to look at everybody's brain as an ocean. There's a lot that we do know, but there's a shitload that we don't know. And there's a lot of unexplored depths in the ocean and in our brains in regards to its chemistry and the, the inner mechanics of it. And everybody's brain, though it's still comprised of water and on planet Earth, there might be different structural undertones to everybody's unique ocean. So the laws of physics still apply inside everybody's brain and inside their relative ocean, but the geography of the terrain might be slightly different. And I use geography as a metaphorical term. I mean, most of our brains look the same, <laughs> but <laughs> so in that regard, you know, like I said, like what, uh, what I think I know about my brain and what works for it, totally different than you know your brain or anybody else's brain that's listening to this so <clears throat> a it's important to choose well you brought it up earlier it's like why am you know people need to know why am i even taking nootropics mm -hmm. is it because i have a lot of social anxiety and i feel like i can't do well at work <clears throat> or i can't build the kind of relationships i want because i don't do well uh, under social pressure um do you need things like, or do you feel depressed and SSRIs just aren't cutting it for you or they're making your depression worse and you need like an, you want to try a natural alternative that do you lack motivation and you just feel like if you just had that little extra motivation that you could get more done in a day, you know, do you feel like your memory is just garbage and that if you could at least increase the amount of information you can retain you know, if you're at school or work, that you could increase your performance, you know, you need to have an underlying reason and a specific one for why you need to take these things. And don't just take a, you know, I think we've all, most of us listening to this have been to college or are in college. We've all drank jungle juice before. And it get, I mean, and it's a hell of a good time. But you know, when we're talking about these kinds of things, like you need to know, like, do I want to drink beer because X, Y, Z, or, you know, do I want to drink liquor because X, Y, Z. And even then, like, what kind of liquor do I want to drink? And for what reason you can't just, you can dump it all into a cauldron. Like a lot of these companies out there who produce prop blends of things or not even, not even necessarily prop blends, but just stacks of, of ingredients that we know work. Like I know beer and vodka will get me pissed drunk if I drink enough of it. So if you pour that into a big tub and just create, you know, with some Kool-Aid and you make a big batch of jungle juice, like I know I'm going to feel it and I know I'm going to have a good time. But at the end of the day, like what was the purpose? You know, and it's, it might not be a great analogy to use for nootropics, but you know, it's kind of that, that same line of thinking in that, yeah, you can take a lot of things that work and you're going to feel it, but what exactly are you doing? In discussing that, I, I, I kind of thought of a few different scenarios where I would choose certain nootropics over other ones. For example, if you listened to our previous episode, I met, Will asked me what my favorite nootropic was, and I said magnesium L3 and 8. One, because 
It helps me sleep, but it also helps calm me down. If I'm anxious, nervous, whatever, it helps calm me down. If I'm studying or writing and maybe I'm on, on a time crunch or I'm just on information overload, I'll take magnesium simply because it like calms me down and I'm able to focus on it. For example, I was doing a presentation on um, metabolic diseases about three we- two weeks ago. And prior to that, about two weeks prior, I did another presentation on obesity. And prior to the obesity presentation, I took um, alpha GPC, uh, a B complex um, with like methylated Bs in it, and some ca- and a little bit of caffeine. And I realized that halfway through my presentation, I was literally talking over myself, talking too fast, and I was like, "Wow, I'm really focused right now, but I can't form sentences properly to make these people understand what I'm talking about." And I realized maybe I shouldn't have taken a gram of alpha GPC. So the next presentation, I cut out the alpha GPC, I cut out the caffeine entirely, and what I basically took was just magnesium althreonate. And my second presentation went much more smoothly because I was just calm and relaxed. I wasn't hyper-stimulated like the first presentation. So that's a perfect scenario where, where, hey, I think this would have worked for me, but I realized halfway through it didn't work for me and I was kind of messing up. Sorry, guys, we lost video. We're going to come back to it. So I realized that... The, the, the kitchen sink scenario or the jungle juice scenario that Will mentioned earlier wasn't the best best for me when I was giving my presentation. So I took it back and I just took one supplement that I knew would just help me calm me down and that was the magnesium L-threonate. So took that and what presentation went smoothly. Just a scenario that shows you that, hey, you should really know what you're taking and you shouldn't throw everything take everything to, to try to achieve a benefit that you're, you're looking to achieve. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I would be the opposite. Like I, I know that I might need something to stim me up before a presentation because it, it helps me recall information faster. And for whatever reason, although I find myself like kind of talking over myself at times, like uh, almost like uh, my, my, my thought, or t- my thoughts are too far ahead of my words or, or vice versa. Um, for whatever reason that jumbled mismatch works for me because I don't know, you, you've seen me in those scenarios before. I just kind of yeah. roll with it and black out, but that works for me. And you know what? There's a lot of it could have to do with the variability of how people um, express certain genes. You know, for example, like some people have a slow, um, some people have a slow catecholamine methyltransferase enzyme because of the way they express that gene and catecholamine methyltransferase is one of the ways that something like dopamine is broken down or degraded in the brain. You know, there's, there's a couple different enzymes that do it, but catecholamine methyltransferase is one of the major ways that uses a methyl group to do so. So if you have a slow catecholamine methyltransferase, it means you're not breaking down dopamine at the same rate as somebody who expresses that gene in a more fast word working manner. So, you know, just off Andy's anecdote, now I wouldn't know this without seeing like some kind of gene testing, but he might express a slow version of catecholamine methyltransferase or COMT. So because of that, Andy probably already has high levels of dopamine at baseline, which might manifest itself in thrill-seeking behavior or addictive type behavior. 
which not to throw you under the bus, but that's probably <laughs> so. So I would agree with you. So now when Andy takes something that increases dopamine further, now he has more turnover because dopamine converts to you know norepinephrine and and then epinephrine down the line. So you might have an overabundance of dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, which might cause you more anxiety than help. You know because we have the the Yerkes Dodson law. And essentially that means that there's an optimal amount of arousal for certain tasks, be they simple or complex and past that level of optimal arousal, there's a deleterious effect in so far that performance goes down. So if you look at the curve of the Yerkes Dodson, the Yerkes Dodson curve, it looks like an inverted U. So there's so as arousal goes up, performance goes up. And then past a certain point, as arousal continues to go up, then performance tends to go down. And that's likely because too much arousal doesn't allow you to actually focus um, on the task at hand. You might not, you might worsen the selectivity of what you're trying to process. Uh, and then you're not actually processing the kind of information you need to or you want to. And your brain activity is kind of all over the place. So, that might be the case for somebody like Andy, where for somebody like me, I probably have really low levels <coughs> of resting dopamine. And, you know, I, my v- gene variation of COMT, I mean, who knows? It could be normal, could be fast, could be slow. I, I wouldn't know till I tested. But from what my understanding of these types of things and my own anecdotes and kind of self-experimentation on myself, you know, it, it would all suggest that I have low levels of resting dopamine and that I do perform better when I'm taking, you know, more arousal type supplements. But if Andy was to take the same dosage of those types of supplements, he would perform worse, you know, whereas I might be bringing my dopamine, uh, glutamate and epinephrine, norepinephrine levels to like an optimal level, they would be pushing Andy over the top. So, you know, that's one thing to consider when trying to decide on, okay, well, I, I need an arousal type supplement for whatever, like I said, be it social ability or motivation, um, you know, or anything else, then you need to consider that. Well, how do I respond to X dosage of X supplement? You know, like, so let's say acetyl-L-carnitine, for example, is one of the supplements that tends to push people over the edge if they're sensitive to stimulants. And what, what you were saying there um, with the COMT gene, so if you have a, I'll call it a dysfunctional COMT gene, then you're more success, susceptible to having diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, certain types of dementia, Parkinson's, because you, because you have the two, I'm asking a question, sorry, it sounds like I'm wording it as like this is a statement, but I'm asking a question that you're more successful, susceptible to these because you may have higher levels of dopamine causing neurotoxicity. Um, that one's tough. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, if there's dysregulation or dysfunction in the way certain genes are expressed that regulate catecholamines, then yeah, it's possible that down the road it could manifest itself in some type of neurodegenerative disease or limitation in cognitive capacity because now dysfunction of a gene would suggest that it's not functioning as it should. Like just because somebody has a fast Let's just, we're using the COMT example. Just because somebody has a fast COMT or a slow one doesn't necessarily mean it's dysfunctional. It just means that's how that person is expressing that gene and, and how the enzyme manifests. 
as a consequence. Now, dysfunctional um, is a problem because you know a lot of these enzymes that especially that regulate catecholamine levels in the brain, they need to act a certain way so that homeostasis in the brain and like the structural integrity of some of these neural systems, like the glutamate system, the dopaminergic system, um, so I say glutamatergic system, um, should I say, um, you know, or even, uh, you know, the acetyl like systems that use acetylcholine, serotonin, things like that. Well, the structural integrity of those systems can break down if there's dysfunction. And we already know that say the glutamatergic system, for example, uh, like NMDA receptor, either hyper or hypo function could eventually manifest itself in Alzheimer's disease, for example. So an understimulation of those receptors can result in not enough, you know, reduced levels of cyclic AMP, which in our last episode, we talked about how that's important for memory consolidation. So an underfunctioning of that system could result in impairment, you know, an impaired ability to store memories. However, hyperfunction of that system could result in neurotoxicity. Uh, and again, eventually now you're talking about death of, of, you know, X amount of neurons within that system and the hyperactivity results in an inability to signal other systems to do their job. Uh, and again, a reduced ability to, to store memories. So it, it gets so tricky, but yeah, like you said, any type of dysfunction and again, dysfunction suggests that something is not working as it should. Um, you know, then yeah, you're looking at potential long-term problems and acute as well, but obviously neurodegenerative diseases are, are, are a massive issue in this country and around the world right now. Just throw an interesting statistic out there. By 2050, we're supposed to be spending about $3.1 trillion on, on Alzheimer's disease alone. Yeah, I think like the one of the statistics taken in 2015 um, I really can't remember the exact one off the top of my head, but I think it was, it was the worldwide associated uh, dementia associated healthcare cost was like 600 billion. And I mean, like you said, it's only, it's only projected to go up uh, by the year, you know, 2020 and then 2050. So it's a, uh, it's pretty astounding. And uh, I think that this kind of surge in relevance uh, yeah, relevance of cognitive health is coming at a much needed time, particularly in this country where we know that, uh, you know, most people aren't exactly getting, getting the, the kind of the nutrients they need to sustain long-term cognitive processes. At least it, it wouldn't seem that way because if it were, we wouldn't see such a drastic spike in neurodegeneration. Um, particularly as we are recently. And it's interesting because you've always heard of these longevity supplements. Like let's, to name a few, resveratrol, grapeseed extract, CoQ10, ubiquinol. Um, you, you've, al you've always seen them, but it wasn't until the past few years that they've become relevant to not only longevity, but, but actually classifying them as, okay, these may be brain health supplements. Knowing how the brain makes energy and the, the brain basically sends signals and do and does what it needs to do 
the, the, these supplements become relevant because you're like, oh, these things have a huge impact on how my brain functions and how it's going to function 30, 50, 60 years from now, depending on how old you are. And I, I think it's incredibly important to, to start looking at brain health um, at a young age because a, as you age, I mean, from, from, from infant to, to 20, um, you have a rapid growth in brain in your brain development. I'll say infant to 30, you have a rapid growth in um, the way your brain develops. Then at 30 or 35, you may have a better statistical on this. It starts to decline. So should we be focusing on more brain health at, at a young age when the brain is actually growing at a rapid rate? Or we should, should we be more focused on it at an older age when it's starting to decline? I mean, I, I think that the obvious answer to that is there's got to be a combination of the two. Like, it's just, I mean, you know, A, um, father time's undefeated, man. So we're all going to be, we're all going to decline in cognitive activity one day. I don't care how much Dave Asprey or Ben Greenfield or all these guys want to, you know, live to be 150, 200 years old. At some point in time, your cognitive ability is going to decline. It might not be at a rate. Um, at the rate at which somebody suffering from a neurodegenerative disease is. However, um, you know, it, it will decline over time. And your, uh, your cognitive functions that you had at 30 and 40 will kind of cease to be a thing, you know? Did you hear about that scientist that wants to chop off his head and put it on donor bodies? Uh, no. What the hell is that? He's either a Russian or an Italian scientist, and he's a neuroscientist, and he claims that he can remove his head from his current body, place it on a donor body, a younger donor body, and he can live forever. Um, how much validity is there to that? Why are you asking that question? <laughs> I mean, logic tells us that's crazy, but like, why? Why, why is that crazy? Because your, your brain ages? Explain to people why that's just nonsense. I mean, dude, to be honest, I don't think science is far enough along to even... Uh, God, I mean, it's definitely not far enough along to support that that's even possible. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm not going to rule it. I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But dude sounds like a quack. That's my answer to that. But hell, <laughs> yeah, I mean... 50 years from now, 100 years from now, man, I could be rolling over in my grave because there could be people walking around with older dead dudes' heads on them. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I wanted to say weirder shit has happened. I don't think it has, but um, yeah, man, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Sounds crazy right now, but uh, I can't comment on it any further than that because, like I said, 100 years from now, something like that could happen. And I could be like, well, shit. What do you know? So now that we went off topic a little bit, let's rope this back into smart choke versus nootropic. Right. Well, I think you know, we were talking really now about um, when, you're, when you're trying to choose nootropics, considering the system as a whole. And we talked, you know, we talked a bit about, you know, kind of how certain genes and the way certain enzymes are, you know, certain genes are expressed and the way certain enzymes work, how that, that could affect the uh the variability between people and how they respond to certain things um you know but i think one that's really <laughs> important for most people is that like you know something things as small as like l-tyrosine and tryptophan two, two of the more common amino acids people take to increase 
dopamine and serotonin respectively. Um, anytime you're, you're taking kind of an unusual concentration of one amino acid, you are at least over time beginning to deplete levels of, of another amino acid or amino acids, you know, uh, L-tryptophan and L-tyrosine, they use a lot of the same enzymes, uh, and they also use a lot of the same transport systems. So if I take a high dose of L-tyrosine and no tryptophan to support, um, support serotonin synthesis, well, you know, now whatever tryptophan I have in my body from <clears throat> maybe whatever food I've eaten that day is now competing with an unusually large amount of L-tyrosine, supplemental L-tyrosine, and less tryptophan is being converted into serotonin because that tyrosine might be, you know, saturating those enzymes and using all the transporters. And now, you know, short term, no big deal. But now long term, I'm quite possibly depleting levels of serotonin uh, in favor of dopamine and, and, and vice versa, <laughs> you know, vice versa. It's interesting because if you continue, if you take high doses of 5-HTP or L-tryptophan and in your hopes to raise serotonin levels, um, you know, you could deplete L-tyrosine, you could deplete um, and inevitably end up depleting dopamine. And it can get, it can be dangerous at a point because something like serotonin um, there's no biochemical feedback inhibition for serotonin production. So we can just keep indefinitely producing serotonin if we just take high doses of serotonin, serotonergic compounds. Um, you know, and that's where you get something what's called serotonin syndrome. And that can be potentially fatal because the body doesn't have any feed, feedback inhibition where it senses a certain amount and goes, okay, now we need to shut off shut off production of this particular chemical because any more could be, uh, could, there could be negative health consequences. So that doesn't exist for L-tryptophan or sorry, L-tryptophan serotonin, which can be made from L-tryptophan. Um, you know, and that, and that's why it can be dangerous to take high doses of, let's say one amino acid in favor of another <clears throat> and to say, not consider the system as a whole, like there needs to be balance and although brain chemistry is tightly regulated, if we don't keep balance in flux, then any kind of imbalance is going to result in negative consequences over time. So in saying that, if someone is supplementing with L-tryptophan and they're supplementing for it to increase serotonin, so maybe they maybe they're a little depressed or maybe they... Yeah, let's just say they're a little depressed and they're supplementing with L-tryptophan. If if they're taking so much L-tryptophan that they're falling asleep afterwards, do you think maybe they're taking too much? I mean, yeah, you know, and I don't think for most people L-tryptophan doesn't normally result in like over drowsiness, particularly, um, you know, because most people don't take doses that that are that high, particularly without taking anything to supplement with it. And this, if people don't know. L-tryptophan eventually converts into 5-HTP, then to 5-HT, which is serotonin. And then if you keep going downstream, it converts into melatonin. So it's a good thing to possibly take at night before you go to sleep. Um, now, again, another thing with like, say, too much tryptophan or too much 5-HTP and too much serotonin, and this is one of the negative consequences of supplementing with like SSRIs for a long period of time. 
And even natural SSRIs can do this if you take them at the right doses and for extended periods of time with no, you know, no dopamine support. <laughs> and that's that uh, serotonin can start to be stored and produced in neurons within the dopaminergic system. So neurons that were meant to be dopamine dominant, serotonin can basically hijack them. And that system begins to dominate the other system. And so now you have somebody with depleted dopamine levels, depleted dopamine signaling, and you know the, the serotonin increase might have felt good at first, but now you're feeling all the effects of low dopamine. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it's no fun. Um, you know, that's, that's just like straight up, like another, another type of depressive symptoms, you know, in comparison to say serotonin deficiency. So <clears throat> I don't think that most people don't get too, too tired when they take a lot of tryptophan, though it does cr create like an anxiolytic effect. So it does make you more calm and somber. And at nighttime, it does make me more tired. Like I, I took some while we were recording this and like, I'm starting to get pretty drowsy myself. Um, you know, but if you're getting over overly tired during the day and feeling unmotivated and you've been taking like a lot of tryptophan or 5-HTP to try to like maybe um, use that as an alternative to SSRIs and, and you, you've used SSRI, SSRIs in the past and you don't have any dopamine support, then it's quite possible that uh, you're, you know, your serotonin system is dominating the, the dopamine one. And, you know, likewise, serotonin and acetylcholine in some parts of the brain are kind of operate on a seesaw. So while one goes up, the other goes down. So yeah, it's just, it's super important, to, um, excuse me, to just look at the system as a whole. Don't look at like one part of the system and be like, oh, I want to increase that. Um, you need to support the entire system. You know, as I say, while we're talking about dopamine, serotonin, and acetylcholine, you know, you also deplete what we call sulfur containing amino acids. And these sulfur containing amino acids are necessary um, for like methylation processes, also necessary for the, the proper balanced functioning of the system. And, and those amino acids are cysteine, homocysteine, methionine, and taurine. So you might want to take a small concentration of I would say either methionine, cysteine, or taurine. And even most people I know don't respond to high doses of methionine well. So, you know, small, small doses of sulfur contained amino acids. Um, you know, obviously if, if, if you are somebody who wants to, you, you want to work on the serotonin system, um, but you, because you want a, a natural alternative to SSRIs or at least prescription grade SSRIs, you know, then <laughs> you might take, let's say, uh, you know, a gram to two grams upward of L-tryptophan a day, you know, now instead of just taking that on its own, try to supplement that with the support of 250, you know, 250 to 500 milligrams of L-tyrosine uh, with maybe, you know, a gram of taurine and you know, 200 milligrams or even less of an acetylcholine precursor. Like that would be as simple as that is, it's just a couple of amino acids and a choline precursor. As simple as that is, that's a smart way to put a little simple stack together. But when you start stacking compounds, that those are the kinds of things you need to think about. Um, you know, because I know that we wanted to talk about stacking 
and you know what the hell that's all about and how you even begin to do that which is you know what we're starting to talk on now but yeah stacking is a whole other ball game when when you know you before we talked about trying to pick out compounds based on different goal like certain goals or things you're trying to attain um but now starting to stack those with other compounds you know it's really easy to get tangled up in the web really really quickly and i want to talk on make one point um you said you mentioned ssri a few times and just to clarify what an ssri is it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor it's used as an antidepressant um and i don't i don't know any brand names i think zoloft maybe one of them i'm not sure don't quote me on that um however what something I also want to comment on is during during your whole conversation about stacking nootropics, you mentioned nothing about more of the the intense ones like Nupept or the Racetam families or any of these things that 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 you're starting to see. Sorry, Racetams aren't regulated and they're kind of taboo to use, um, but you're starting to see them pop up occasionally in some supplements. But during your entire conversation there, you didn't ma- mention any of them. You literally just mentioned amino acids and a choline source. And talk about talk a little bit about why um, why when you're first starting out with nootropics, you don't need to start using these heavy compounds that that have very litter very little literature to support them. Right. So a the the, the racetams or sedums, however you want to call them. Um, there's oh, that, yeah, no, no, I'm saying there's fine. There's no way, there's no right way to pronounce it. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, but those are synthetic compounds. So they were made in a lab. And like Andy said, like the amount of like scientific literature on those is so underwhelmingly small that we don't know what the long-term consequences are of these things. Now they, do they work like hell? Yeah, they do. Um, you know, and <clears throat> I, I don't really mess with race attempts so much anymore, but Essentially, racetams, heracetams, <laughs> they uh, they affect uh, they affect the like acetylcholine system in varying ways. Whether it's increasing the synthesis of acetylcholine, increasing the rate of usage of acetylcholine, um, making more acetylcholine available in general, it's that's kind of how different ones tend to work on. And they all they all do something slightly different and have different half lives. But, you know, they also might work on the glutamatergic system. So, like, for instance, aniracetam works on AMPA and NMDA receptors, which both are, we know, are active. But we talked about it. Like, over-functioning of those things, not good. Optimal functioning of those things, long-term potentiation, uh, better memory consolidation, faster mem- uh, information processing and recall. Um, but those those systems also activate certain reward systems and, and dop- dopaminergic um, neurons. So aniracetam, I think there's a little <coughs> bit of cell data that shows that it, it works on dopamine type 2 and 3 receptors um, through its activation of the AMPA glutamate receptors. You know, but those because, like, you know, like we're talking about now, like you take one thing that we say, okay, well, it affects the AMPA receptors, right, but activation of those then activates these receptors. And there's just like the signaling cascade that if you don't understand it very well and you're just taking like, oh, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take it with this. And like, you have no clue what's going on in your own head. No idea. And 
<laughs> further, we said like there's no scientific literature that shows that these things are safe long term. And when I say safe, I just mean like that there's no negative consequences. I'm not saying your brain's going to turn to fucking jelly, you know. But it, but but it might, you know. <laughs> we, <laughs> Um, you know, not trying to scare people, but there, there's no long-term and like really long-term research with a lot of these compounds. And now you're talking about stacking them and you have people saying like, oh yeah, it's fine. You can take it every day and they're totally safe. Like based off of what, you know, like who the hell gave you that information? Because I would fucking love it. Now, like I said, like I know a lot of these things are safe at recommended dosages and probably can be taken most days. But this is my honest to God belief is I don't believe anything, unless you're deficient in something, I don't believe anything was made to be taken every day, particularly at the doses and with the other compounds that people are taking them with nowadays, just to try to get ahead. So based on all of that information, where, where is it best for people to start? So I, I remember having conversations with you where you were like, okay, you need a choline source okay you need a an x a y you, you need these things to to produce an optimal stack based on your knowledge and what you've read so where where do people start right and i think that again guys this is this is totally for beginners so if you're like a seasoned vet you know and you're looking to for me to be talking to you about what to stack with like methylene blue and stuff then you know that then you're going to have to find that information in another episode because we will get to that. We're going to talk about more intense compounds um, and things of that nature, but this is totally for beginners and people trying to get their toes wet in this. And with people who are just starting out, I recommend like you just said before, like we were just talking about simple amino acids, um, things like L-tyrosine, L-tryptophan. Um, I don't think 5-HTP is right for most people. I think I posted enough about that on my Instagram. Um, but you know, you know, things like, uh, L-DOPA from uh, Macuna Purians, however you pronounce it. Um, you know, I think L-DOPA is just one step closer to dopamine from L-tyrosine. So, you know, start to experiment <laughs> with things of that nature and, and even, so go a little bit further back, like, you know, try, uh, try small doses, you know, or intermediate doses of something like phenylalanine with uh, l-tryptophan and see how that treats you you know decide you know okay maybe you feel like you're not very motivated within a given day maybe you so maybe you want to favor the phenylalanine dose or the l-tyrosine dose you know but then take take a i would say a dose of something that supports the opposite system so let's just say dopamine and serotonin are just the two easiest ones to compare um, you know, take a dose of something that's going to support serotonin production. That's maybe a third or a quarter, maybe a quarter that of that of dopamine. If that's, if dopamine is the system that you're going to favor. So say a higher dose of phenylalanine, L-tyrosine or L-dopa, and then, you know, a quarter of that, take a quarter of that dose and add an L-tryptophan and then maybe do the same with a sulfur containing amino acid uh, my vote is for either cysteine or taurine for most people. I think most people should not supplement with homocysteine and, um, <laughs> heart disease. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, um, most people probably don't need to supplement with methionine either. Um, it just, it can be pretty stimulatory. 
but if you feel like you're one of those people who can handle it and you just want to go for it, then sure. You know, what about something like folate or methylfolate, including that in, in the combination you just said? Right. So yeah, let's talk about B vitamins really quick. You know, those are, uh, B vitamins are cofactors for the synthesis of catecholamines and a lot of other things as well. Um, you know, methylfolate particularly is a favorite of mine. It's kind of important. I think it's it's common knowledge, at least for for a lot of people, but I know some people won't know that here and that's okay. That folic acid um, on its own that you get in most of your B complexes and multivitamins is just straight garbage. Uh, most people, like a, a literally a majority of people do not have an enzyme that functions at a well enough rate to convert folic acid to uh, 5-methyl uh, tetrahydrofolate, you know, if that's how you... And that's, yeah, 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. And that enzyme is, that's the MTF, MTHFR gene, or uh, that's a gene that, that, that codes for that enzyme. Um, and I, th- I think like 70% of people are, are deficient in that, that gene. Right. So methylfolate basically bypasses that conversion and you don't have to have the folic acid conversion into that. You just, you get the, the product. So methylfolate <laughs> helps. A, it's, it's called methylation, which is a topic for a whole nother day, but methylation is involved in almost, almost every process in the body. And particularly, you know, for, for our sake, we're talking about catecholamine synthesis and neurotransmitter balance and stuff like that. So methylfolate is used to um, help reduce uh, what homocysteine uh, to methionine and cysteine, and then the methionine binds with an ATP, and then you get SAMe. You know, and then SAMe is is one of the main primary methyl donors in the body for methylation. So, <coughs> uh, you know, <coughs> excuse me, B12 also plays a big role in that. Um, so does B6. That's why you'll commonly see B12, B6, and uh, unfortunately, folic acid, but um, or we'll say B9. Um, you'll see that with a lot of nootropic stacks for the reason being that it helps facilitate the conversion processes of these things. You know, like B6 is plays an important role in the conversion of L tryptophan to serotonin and uh, melatonin, for instance. But Methylfolate can also, depending on, again, we talked about that COMT gene, the catecholamine methyltransferase, which is the enzyme that uses a methyl group. And because we're talking about methylation, it's relevant. Um, Some people can't handle methylfolate because like yourself, it might put you over the top and you might feel a little too anxious or jittery. Um, I love methylfolate. It makes me feel great around 200 to 400 micrograms. Some people can work up to 600 to 800 micrograms, but I would suggest starting at the lower end of that. And if you find that, excuse me, if you find that you do not respond well to methylfolate, then you could take full, something like folinic acid, which is a non-methylated but usable form of B9. Um, you know, but you're gonna you're gonna see the the results of that manifest themselves with like uh, it's gonna have like a hair, skin, and nails effect because folate is plays a large role in DNA methylation, but folinic acid seems to kind of bolster those results in terms of like hair growth, you know, um, skin repair, nail growth and, and things of that nature. So it's kind of, 
in my opinion, it's more of like a cosmetic, um, cosmetic facilitator, um, methylfolate, you're going to feel more of a neural effect from it. But well, like I said, you may not, um, you may not respond well to it, in which case folinic acid is, will be a lot better for you. Um, but yeah, I would stick clear of folic acid. Um, if I were most people out there listening to this, so B vitamins, you know, those are <coughs> B vitamins, magnesium, um, all those things really zinc, uh, zinc, copper, and selenium, all really great to make sure that those are like, you know, contained within like a multivitamin. Um, I, I wouldn't take any of those in super high doses. I would take, you know, I take magnesium at moderate doses, but some of like the metals like zinc, copper, selenium, you know, I, I don't think that you need to take incredibly high doses of those unless you know you're deficient. But if they're contained at the right ratios in like a multivitamin or something, then that's totally fine. So you look at all these other vitamins that that act as cofactors for, say, the synthesis of catecholamines and the appropriate functioning of different neural systems. You know, now when you take all these things into consideration, it's not just as simple as, oh, I just want to take this one nootropic and make my life better. You know, it's like, a, like, like we said, it can turn to a shitstorm really fast. Um, and there's a lot of things to take into consideration. And we're literally only talking about the basics right now. And we've been talking about this for a little bit. Something interesting that as you're talking through that, you're like, okay, well, B, B6, B12, um, folic acid, folate, folate, methylfolate, whatever it may be. Um, these are all cofactors in the production of neurotransmitters as well as like selenium um, and I think you mentioned zinc. Interestingly, a lot of the things you mentioned are deficient in like people who follow a vegan diet. And one of the main things that many people claim when they're on a vegan diet is a lot of brain fog. Do you think that there's some correlation there between the vegan diet and the lack of these these micronutrients and the brain fog? Uh, yeah, 100% I do. Because, I mean, not to shit on the vegan diet, but at the same time, <laughs> you're also becoming deficient in certain amino acids. You know, let's just say phenylalanine, L-tryptophan, for example. Um, also, you know, the fish started to become deficient in probably some B vitamins and um, choline. So we, yeah. need cho we need choline for acetylcholine production and the highest sources of choline are found in animal products, in particular meats and really dense in red meats. So yeah, I mean, you, you know, that's not to say you can't successfully supplement a vegan diet. Just if you're on a vegan diet and you're, you're, and you're trying to achieve optimal brain function, then you're going to need some form of supplementation. I don't think there's any way around that. You, you can't eat enough I'm going to, I'm going to get attacked for this, but you can't eat enough twigs and grass in the world <laughs> to, um, to get what you need in, in those, in those areas. And again, I'm not shitting on the vegan diet. It's, it's fun to make fun of my bad. Um, but, <laughs> my, my point in bringing that up is, is that you've probably seen that there's a huge debate right now between plant-based dieting and like either ketogenic dieting or carnivore dieting. So I just thought it was interesting to bring up because, um, it's a hot topic right now, and just to bring a more awareness to 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 these types of diets and what you may be deficient in when you're when you're consuming these types of foods. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Diet is going to first and foremost play the biggest role in um, 
in how you feel at least on a, a cognitive basis, you know, and then obviously supplementation is, is meant to do just that supplement with what you already should be doing, which is getting your diet on point and making sure that you're getting as close to everything you need from that. Um, you know, and then it just helps to be knowledgeable enough about supplementation to put together, put together the right ingredients so that the whole system functions, uh, in, in synchrony with itself. And, and it doesn't, you know, you can't, you can't orchestrate, um, an orchestra, you know, like a masterpiece, uh, if you're missing an instrument. And that's kind of how I like to look at it is in order to compose a masterpiece, you need to have every instrument, um, you know, that was written into the written into the piece. And if one is one's missing, it's not that one's more important than the other, though, for a particular piece of music and or a person, one might be more particular, might be might one might be more important than another. Um, but if one instrument is missing, uh, then you, uh, you no longer have the masterpiece that, that was meant to be played completely agree i mean i think this was a pretty dense episode this is more dense than the last one i think so yeah um thank you guys for listening do you want to close it out well yeah guys appreciate you uh <coughs> taking the time to listen hopefully you learned something if you disagree with the, with anything we said let us know um catch us on Wherever you guys listen to podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, um, what else are we on Spotify? YouTube, uh, Google Play Store, we're everywhere. All right, guys. Yeah, so listen to us. Give us a review. Let us know how we're doing, and we'll catch you guys next time. Actually, I'm going to add one more thing. Um, we're actually going to have a website up soon, and on that website, we're actually going to host um, particular ingredients or supplements that we recommend, maybe, for example, we'll mention methylfolate or folinic acid. Um, if you like those supplements and like what you hear, um, on our website, we'll actually have a link to where our preferred recommended one that you can go check out, and if you want to purchase it, you can. Um, so, yeah. All righty. All right, guys. We'll catch you next time. What's up, guys and gals? This is Andrew Barninger, co-host of What's Up Radio. I want to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you ever have any questions about the topics Will and I discuss, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at What's Up Radio. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and the Google Play Music Store. Just search What's Up Radio. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at What's Up Radio for news and highlights of upcoming episodes.